Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. So, first of all, let me introduce Stephen Dorrell. I'll try not to cough on that one. Um, I'm sure most of you know who he is anyway, but um, Stephen was, uh, just looking at your biography, realised you were elected the youngest member of parliament in, in May 1979, and uh, I wondered who knocked you off that spot, actually. Um, well, the answer is it's an interesting one, because it was Bobby Sands, who you may remember was the IRA yes. hunger striker, who died three weeks after he was elected. To Parliament, which means that I'm the only person ever to be the youngest member of the House of Commons twice. <laughs> um, so, Stephen's held a number of positions, but for the purposes of today, I've had to cut out huge chunks of his biography and just concentrate on the, the health bit as Parliamentary Undersecretary at the Department of Health from May 1990 to April 1992 and during some important times in the health service, just when I became a health correspondent. He was back at the Department of Health this time as Secretary of State and a, a post he held from July 95 to March 97 and from 2006 to 2007 co-chair of the Public Service Improvement Group which probably some of us have forgotten, had forgotten now but was very influential in what's happened in health now. Um, and since then, of course, has been chair of the Health Select Committee, and it's really today, I think, that just makes you such an all-round expert on the, on the questions that we want to ask. Uh, this is in conversation with Stephen Dorrell. I have to say I, I was looking forward to a leather chair with a smoking jacket, and <laughs> I, I'm very sorry that we're up here behind um, a table. But anyway, let's have a chat. We'll have a chat. Yes. Look forward to it. The first thing I want to talk to you about is we don't want to concentrate too much on the Health and Social Care Act because that's, that's been and happened in a way, but I need to ask you what your view is on Ed Miliband and his announcement that he's going to repeal this massive act. What, what was your first thought? Well, I actually went to Manchester. I, it's now I seem to be becoming a feature of Labour Party conferences, <laughs> and there was a debate on Monday night with Andy Burnham at the Labour conference at which uh, Andy trailed this announcement that they were planning to uh, repeal the Act. And I offered him a piece of advice, which is that in the run-up to the last general election, as a Tory politician, I found that one of the things that you could say that went down best with health audiences, we haven't really uh, carried this through, I think, since the election, but ahead of the election, was to suggest that we'd had enough of institutional upheaval and no more re-disorganisation seemed to me quite a good starting point. Um, uh, and I still think that's true. I wouldn't personally, as I think is very well known, have set out through a huge institutional redrawing of the map since 2010. Uh, but that's happened. There are a new set of organisations in the process of being set up. Uh, frankly, I think they will, when they're finally set up and complete, be extremely familiar. They will look very familiar. There will be roughly the same number of CCGs as there were PCTs, as there were in, in a previous existence in my time. Health authorities are not certain why we have to go on reinventing these organizations. And the same thing applies to trusts and the strategic health authorities will, I suspect, the, the, uh, very, the regional manifestations of the commissioning board will, I suspect, bear quite a striking resemblance to what used to be uh, 15 years ago regional health authorities. So why, we, why do we have to go on reinventing this? I have never developed a satisfactory answer for myself. 
And I don't really understand why uh, Labour make a commitment to do it all again. I think the good news for the health service, if I uh, can sort of stand back from the party politics, is that when Andy was asked to explain what he meant by the commitment to repeal the Act, he said he didn't really have too much problem with most of the commissioning institutions uh, or indeed with the trusts, which of course have more or less survived in broadly the same form now for roughly 20 years. Uh, And he talked about the importance of not having all the competition element in the third part of the Act. Since I don't really, I still don't get Uh, what is the purpose of the third part of the Act. It seems to me if you have commissioners with £120 billion of public money, they have an obligation to find the best solutions, the best value, highest quality solutions for the patients on whose behalf uh, they're commissioning care. And if you have commissioners with public budgets, then different parts of the health service, different third uh, sector organisations and different private sector organisations will make proposals to the commissioners about how best to discharge those responsibilities. And why wouldn't you want that? I mean, and that the... was the answer, I, a question I put to Andy, and to be honest, got... I didn't think a wholly satisfactory answer. (laughs) Never, not from a politician. (laughs) One of the the interesting things that that came up when I was at the conference was actually, at the moment, it's about 4.5% provision by the private sector, and they only expect that to go up to 10%. That's not including mental health care. So actually, I'm quite just throwing it forward in a way, is are we even going to see... Um, the choice, as it were, um, that that private providers were meant to give us. Um, Is there enough, or is there too much bureaucracy, or is there not enough willpower in the NHS to Uh, allow that to happen? Can I pick up two uh, words you've used and treat them slightly separately? Uh, First of all, choice, which is a word that uh, has a whole lot of baggage attached to it in the context of the health debate. If the the uh, understanding of the concept of greater choice is that we're trying to create a world where patients have absolute right to choose anything that they like at public expense without constraint. Life ain't like that. And uh, again, at this debate on Monday night, I suggested that what we want is surely a little more nuance in this. Uh, When you go to medical school, first term at medical school, you learn that modern medical practice, and the same thing applies across the rest of clinical practice, is to engage patients in decisions about their own care. So engagement with patients, enabling patients to make choices, ensuring that the choices that are made reflect the preferences of patients, is no more than good clinical practice. But is it unconstrained choice? Is it choice without professional advice? Is it choice without budgetary constraints? Of course it isn't. In a tax-funded system, it cannot be. So greater patient engagement in choices about care, personalised care, as as the previous panel was debating, seems to me no more than good practice and a good understanding of what modern care should provide. So that's one element. Then many of the choices actually will be made by commissioners about the shape of care to reflect the priorities of today's patients and the opportunities created by today's technology. Choices will be made by commissioners as well as by individual patients. What's the role of the private sector in that? Well, again, it depends what you mean by the private sector. 
Strictly speaking, The Economist will tell you the whole of general practice, NHS general practice, is private sector. So what does this debate mean? Does the private sector include the third sector? Does it ultimately matter which provider delivers the care that it most effectively meets the need of an individual patient and delivers best value to the taxpayer? As I didn't actually say on Monday, but I always enjoy saying to Labour audiences, uh, I'm a straightforward Blairite on this. It seems to me that if we're securing equitable access to high-quality care, it's the care that matters and the, the value for money that matters, not the brass plaque on the... On the wall of the provider. I mean, just coming back to this issue of choice, because it it was so much brought up before, I'm intrigued by, I was at a meeting recently where they were talking about the reconfiguration of hospitals in northwest London and closing down the A&Es, and so there are two two very big hospitals that could potentially go, and I wondered where the choice was in that, because the Royal College of Physicians and so on are saying okay, we want super centres where you have the the expertise all in the same place, and yet the people in the audience were saying, I want to go to my local hospital. Yeah, and uh, one of the things... uh, uh, I voted for the Health and Social Care Act all the way through, uh, although I've made clear that I wouldn't have set about it that way. Part of the reason I did that was that there were one or two things in there, I think, that are worth doing. And one of the things is to try to facilitate not only greater clinical engagement in commissioning through commissioning, uh, clinical engagement in the commissioning process, but also greater local ownership in decisions about uh, the future shape of healthcare. And I actually think that in 15 years' time, provided we don't throw all the cards up in the air again, uh, the thing that will be remembered from this Act will be the development of health and well-being boards. Why do I say that? Partly because I think there will be they provide an opportunity for greater engagement in the kind of decisions that you describe in Northwest London. Actually, much, much more importantly, because health and well-being boards uh, are in a good position to follow through the real agenda in the reshaping of healthcare or care provision uh, for the next generation, which is to recognise that although uh, acute care in hospitals will, of course, continue to be a vital part of the care package. The big numbers, both in terms of attendances, in terms of money spent, in terms of the effect on people's lives, will increasingly, in my view, be around more integrated care and support services. And it goes back to the point we were just just mentioned about public-private. Quite a lot of of social care as we define it these days uh, is provided by the private sector and increasingly it seems to me the divide between social care and health care and community health and social care social care and social housing all of those uh, traditional silos need to be broken down and re-engineered in order to deliver a more integrated package of care, more joined-up care, to avoid a jargon word, more joined-up care that is focused on the needs of individual patients. And engaging local communities in that process, reimagining what care looks like, those are the real choices we have to face. And if the NAO says that 30% of acute hospital and non-emergency acute hospital admissions are avoidable, Well, we wouldn't want to keep 30% of a sector that costs us £60 billion a year around if we don't need it, do we? 
I mean, this is an interesting point, and I know it's one of your particular interests, the mm. integration of social care and, and health. But when you look at it, I mean, we have one very good example in Tor Bay. We have a lot of history about how it could potentially work, and yet I haven't seen much evidence of um, willingness to make sure that integration, that very important integration, is happening. And yet, yet we're talking about people with obesity, diabetes, long-term conditions who could be treated in the community in better housing. <laughs> Indeed, but uh, I absolutely agree with you that there's huge institutional difficulty about achieving the kind of reshaping of the care package, the care delivery system, uh, that, uh, that is required if we're going to deliver quality and value. Uh, but the fact that it's difficult doesn't, doesn't mean I'm going to go away on the subject, I'm afraid, because uh, the, this is, the, the, and it's one of the concerns I have about the structures and why I've placed the emphasis I just did on the health and well-being boards, is that at the moment, post-act, we have a commissioning system for social housing, we have a commissioning system for social care, we have a commissioning system for primary health, and so on. Five different commissioning systems, and uh, politicians talking about integration. Well, just talk me through it. Uh, it's why I'm, I, from the select committee, will continue to place the emphasis on the requirement to set up inter joined up single budget, single commissioning systems. And not because I've got some theological commitment to it, but because rising elderly population, people with multiple conditions, most importantly, developing care needs, they answer a question to the GP, they answer a question to the community nurse, they answer a question to the social care, to the social worker, they answer a question to the social housing expert. They all feed it into their computer systems. None of the computer systems talk to each other. I sometimes wonder whether even within the computer systems people get the information out. But how can you deliver integrated care out of a set of management structures which never talk to each other? And people often talk about innovation in the health service and the implication is that what we're talking about is the latest drug or the latest gizmo in the operating theatre. Actually, simply using old-fashioned computer information technology, old-fashioned old computers, <laughs> the basic computer, allowing us to pass information around the system and use it, that's actually, I think, the biggest facilitator to change. Uh, far bigger than any uh, narrowly clinical innovation that I can see on the horizon. Like sending an email well, <laughs> or a text. Well, yes, <laughs> indeed. Well, that, that, would be, that would be a start, but we can go a little bit yes. further than the email. Well, well, just picking up on that point that was made before, I mean, I, I, I heard you sort of um, laugh at the 17 years from, from, from conception of an idea to, to practice in the NHS. I mean, that's just extraordinary length of time. Well, I did, in fact, I think I shared with you the thought, I don't think it took Steve Jobs that long. <laughs> uh, no, and, now, the te and, and technology... And let, let's, uh, I mean, I, I made the point, and I don't resile from it, I also, of course, it's important to remember uh, that we are dealing with... It, it, when we're dealing with drug technologies or surgical technologies, acute medicine, uh, we are dealing with uh, uh, um, dangerous substances that can have, as history teaches us, 
uh, unintended long-term consequences, and it is absolutely right that those are properly bottomed before uh, the, the uh, new treatment is used generally. Of, of course that's right, uh, but having uh, the proper checks and balances in place is, is one thing. Uh, challenging traditional uh, clinical practice when it's demonstrated that there's better options available and being used elsewhere in this country and elsewhere in the world, uh, that's something our system isn't sufficiently good at. It's one of the reasons why 22 years ago I was a keen advocate of the, what we used to call uh, uh, purchasing in those days, what we've renamed commissioning, don't have a problem with the, with the label, uh, Effective commissioning still has a, a, the feel about it, as I'm fond of saying, of being an idea we should try sometime. <laughs> just, just, just briefly before we open up to, to questions, um, what is, what is your, do, do you have an overall vision of, of, how, of the future of healthcare, about, about how you want to see it working? I think I've already offered it, the, the core of it in, in my mind. Uh, and it starts, I'm both a businessman and a, a, a politician interested in these areas. Uh, I'm fond, uh, one of the other things I often say is that health is different from the rest of economic activity because we want access to health care based on need, not ability to pay. That's why we pay for it through taxation. I'm wholeheartedly in favor of that. But that's looking at the commissioning side. On the provider side, Hospitals and people who deliver health care, that is a form of economic activity. And like other, all other forms of economic activity, it needs to change to reflect, of course, the clinical technologies, to use modern information technology in a way that we haven't done effectively in the health and care system, and most importantly, to reflect the changing needs of today's generation of patients. So when we talk about the NAO and their 30% overcapacity in parts of the acute sector, when we talk about the developing needs of the elderly population for joined-up care, that's a changing requirement on the system. Not surprisingly, it means the system to meet those needs efficiently will look dramatically different if we do it properly. From, what it, from the system that grew up to treat infectious diseases and industrial accidents in the 1950s and 1960s. So many of our institutions in health and care are designed to administer a familiar landscape. They're not designed to understand where the landscape needs to be and change it to deliver the new need with the new technology more efficiently and to a higher standard. Well, I think that's a very good good uh, subject to um, throw open to the floor, so uh, if you can put up your hands and uh, with any questions. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll just take um, one there and one here to start with. Hello. Hi. Hi I'm, uh, my name's Francine Bennett, and I run a small technology and data firm called Mastodon C. Um, I completely agree that the NHS definitely needs to make better use of modern information technology, but it sounded to me as if you were saying that the, the NHS needs to understand that it needs to do this. But wh when I speak to people within the NHS, they, they really know that already, and, and they're, they know what they want. The, the problem that I find try, trying to work with them is they say, well, we're terribly sorry, but we're locked into a 10-year contract with a very big vendor. They own the data. We're not even allowed to see it. 
Um, so th the problem is, is not one of wish or understanding of what they want to do, but of, of actually procurement, which is, sounds quite a boring issue, but it's a huge blocker. Um, do, do you see anything happening to unblock that? I see it elsewhere in government with things like the government digital service, but I'm not seeing it yet in the NHS. And over here. Thank you. Tana Wallen again. Um, which countries, in your view, have efficient, integrated health social management systems? Right. Uh, can I deal uh, two nice, easy questions? Uh, does the health care system, the health and care system, or the care system in some ways, I prefer calling it the care system because I think that's where the emphasis needs to be uh, with acute uh, facilities when they're needed. Does it understand that there's an opportunity there in the use of information technology? Yes, I acknowledge that it does. Uh, I've already said I don't think that the commissioning system... The, the system will be, desire, will, will be led in the direction or not led in the direction that I describe uh, by the flow of funds, public funds. Uh, public funds are coming currently out of these five different commissioning structures that I describe. And so the, the, the weather, you will only use information technology to achieve the change in the shape of care delivery if that's the direction in which the funds, the, the, the commissioners are leading it. And so proposition one in my mind is that we have to stop imagining that we're commissioning five different systems and trying to get them to link together and start thinking about it as commissioning one joined up joined up system uh, and where, I, don't fully, I don't really agree that it, this is just about getting the procurement right because that implies uh, that if we, bought, if we bought up for our current structures a bit cleverer suddenly that would deliver us what we in the health committee call the Nicholson challenge the 20 billion, the, what I think is much more accurately described not as 20 billion pounds of what not cuts because the money still comes it's the, the requirement is to meet 4% increase in demand year on year on year on year on year out of a budget that is no longer growing as it has done at a trend rate since 1948 at 3% real per annum. If the, if the budget is basically fixed in real terms and demand goes on growing by 4% per annum, then you don't need to have been to business school to work out that the only way you, get, you balance that is by achieving 4% efficiency gain, which is not just about buying computer systems more cleverly. It's about reinventing uh, the care model, and that's why responsibility rests, in my mind, with the integrated commissioner. Until that uh, nut is cracked... We'll, we shall go on administering the current systems rather than changing the systems in the way that I think we need to do. So which brings you then to the second question. Is there anybody in the world who's done it in the way that uh, I, uh, I describe? Uh, there's nowhere I would, point, I, I would point to and saying they've got there uh, because this is a process, not an event. Uh, it, it's uh, it's a, uh, the, the changing opportunities of technology and needs of patients, uh, that's an ongoing process in every developed country. I think there are bits of other people's systems 
uh, that uh, I believe do it better than we do. Ironically, some of them, I think, are found in North America. There's a, a short band of suspects everybody's heard of around Kaiser, around Cleveland, around Mayo, where they have started down this road more effectively, I think, uh, than we have. Uh, the, one of the other areas that's been recommended to me, though I can't speak for it, is in Sweden, which is where we're off with the select committee to look and see whether they're as good as it said it is in uh, November. Uh, but the, what we're doing here, what I'm advocating, is a change in the understanding of what the core activity of our care system actually needs to be understood to be. The core activity isn't the normally healthy adult who turns up to the GP referred for treatment, treated, walks out healthy. Very important people, you can't forget them, but wouldn't it be more intelligent to design a 120 billion pound system around the core activity rather than around the needs of, with respect, journalists and politicians who talk about this in SW1? Um, just, just going back to that, the Nicholson challenge, which, which you've spoken about, and, and about getting all mixed up with the, the reforms. I mean, do you think that it's a good thing for the health service that, that, that they are being made to look at the budget in this way, that they have to make these cuts just at the time when the demand is, is growing? Well, I, I think there are three things. I don't actually think it's just the, the time that the demand is growing. I think the demand has been growing crudely. If you, if, uh, I prefer to miss out decimal points because it makes it easier, when you, certainly when you haven't got a PowerPoint. Uh, over 60 years, demand in this and every other country for health and care services has grown at, roughly speaking, 4% per annum. And that's going to go on. Why would it stop? It's a long-term established trend. We, the reasons for it are very well understood. It's just going to, it, these people are going to go on coming. And the question for the system is, what are we going to do about it? Now, for 60 years, we've, again, removing the decimal points and looking at long-term trends, we've met 4% growth of demand by giving it 3% more taxpayers' money and achieving 1% efficiency gain. Uh, now... Uh, because the, the cash has run out or the, the ability to deliver more cash has run out, uh, we have to meet that long-term trend, uh, trend growth of demand by using resources more efficiently. Would, we, would you choose to be here? No, of course not. Uh, but, and incidentally, I think it's very important also uh, to, uh, also to restate that although this is, I think, unavoidably true for all kinds of broad macroeconomic reasons everybody's familiar with, I think it's unavoidably true for the foreseeable future. Do I think this is life forevermore? No, I don't. I, again, look at it in the broad march of history. As societies get richer, they have a marginal propensity to spend more of their extra wealth on health. Uh, I don't, it doesn't matter. I don't worry about the fact that we used to spend 5% of our national income on health care and we now spend virtually 10 That's simply the product of us growing richer and it's a rational choice. You can't, you know, there are only so many cars you can buy and only so many gizmos you can put in the kitchen. It's a completely rational choice to spend a rising proportion of a, of a rich country's income on looking after elderly people and securing better quality of life. That's what our care system's there to do. So that, will, that trend will, in my view, re-establish itself. 
but it's, we've got ahead of ourselves and for the moment we have to focus on doing, getting more out of the cash that is available to the system, which if you, and I, I, let me explain the figure I always use, which is 120 billion. That is the NHS and social care budget rolled into together, which is, I think, the right way of looking at it. Yeah, and uh, at the back there. Morning, <coughs> John Wilden. Um, can I ask you a tricky um, political question, please? And that's, uh, for healthcare, could we form a, a real coalition of all three parties? In other words, try and get some broad agreement so we don't get this disruption. Because uh, a couple of points I really want to make. One is that, uh, I mean, Mike Rawlings gave a very good summary a couple of years ago, the founder of NICE, saying it wasn't that the quantity and quality of care in this country hasn't uh, improved, it has. It's just that if you look at the main European and American institutions, um, they've improved uh, more, than, more than we have in the UK. And clearly one of the reasons for that is this disruption that goes on between major policies. And it was one of the things that um, Professor David Weatherall made before uh, he retired from, from Oxford, before the, I think, the last election and so on. Um, if I think of my own experience of the Mayo, I mean, I think there'd be just a blue fit if somebody came to the chief executive or chairman of, of, of major departments and said, it's all going to change in 2015. You know just as well about that as I do. Uh, I do. Uh, I, uh, I think that uh, there is a tender... The, uh, two points to make. The first is the... the um, experience we've had over 20 years now of endless redesign of the management structure of the organogram as I like to call it avowedly a, a jargon word because I think that's all we've done is to change the management structure and it's actually become a displacement activity what I've been describing is the requirement to change the way care is delivered to change the experience of patients and the problem is that we endlessly we have this endless churn in the management structure and that actually means that the management structure isn't doing its day job, which is changing the way care is delivered. And so we've, we've been changing the wrong thing. Uh, and in the, indeed, by changing it, disabling it from doing the thing that it should be paid for, uh, which is to use resources more efficiently and to ensure that the way chain, uh, care is delivered is changed. Um, can I offer you absolute comfort that... Uh, we don't go for another round of that in 2015. Well, I guess the best way I can do it is by asking you to vote Tory, but <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's too much of a giveaway. Uh, beyond that, uh, I, I did at, at this event on Monday. Uh, on the, uh, you'll never get health out of party politics. Of course you won't. It's health, the, the, the care budget uh, is by far, by far, the largest public service budget paid for by taxpayers. The, the welfare budget transfer payments is bigger still. But health, health and care is an order of magnitude bigger than any other public service budget. And of course, the political debate will focus on the government's record and, and uh, whether it's, the money's been spent wisely and whether the, it's delivering objectives and whether an alternative government could do better. And I don't have any problem with that. I just wish that in that debate, 
the debate could focus on the substance, which is the points you were making about cancer performance, the quality measures on dementia, on delivery on dementia, uh, and delivery on diabetes, uh, focus on outcome measures uh, rather than believing uh, that only one more go at throwing the management cards up in the air, that's the only thing that lies between us and Nirvana. It's, uh, we've had 60 years go at that and uh, it hasn't worked yet. So we have one more question over here and then we'll have to wrap up. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Robert Leckler. I'm Vice Principal of King's College in charge of health and I also lead King's Health Partners, one of the UK's five academic health science centres. If I could start very briefly with a comment to congratulate Mr. Dorrell on giving, I thought, an exceptionally coherent account of where healthcare needs to go and where it's come from. My question is about integrated care. Uh, we're very committed to developing integrated care in Lambeth and Southwark, uh, and we're making progress. But I think the biggest obstacle probably is something you alluded to when you talked about general practice, which is not part of the NHS in the same way that other elements are. And essentially, in order to achieve integrated care, we need to get GPs to consent to participate and play with us. And I wonder whether you think that we're ever going to really capitalize on the opportunity unless we do something to change the nature of the general practice contract um, and why government hasn't tackled that one. Is it just the BMA or is there something else that I'm missing? <laughs> My goodness, I was told to wrap up. That's going <laughs> to take the rest of the morning. Uh, Briefly. Indeed, indeed. Um, this is one of the uh, elements of the process on the Act uh, that uh, if I'd been doing uh, John Healy's job or Andy Burnham's job, I would have focused on. Uh, I simply don't understand uh, why uh, we have moved from a world... Well, let, let me go back a stage. The last piece of legislation that I was responsible for as Secretary of State for Health was the introduction of, local of a local contracting option uh, for primary care in order to get away from the concept that what you had to have was a national contract for GPs. Uh, now, you couldn't, we were never going to get to the point where you, you went from, one, from a national contract to a local contracting model. But by introducing the local, local contracting option, what I was consciously and deliberately seeking to do was to, to move towards a world where local commissioners of care could work with their social care providers, with their community health providers, with their GPs, to commission integrated packages which worked in a locality. Now, one of the, the uh, results of the recent act is that we've moved away from that back to national contracting, not only national contracting, but national contracting where the national commissioning process is held divorced from uh, the CCG, at least technically. Uh, do I think that will endure? Well, I have to say I hope not. I don't understand. Well, I'm back to my concept of a single commissioner budget. Single commissioner budget held by Health and Wellbeing Board would, it seems to me, um, not be subject to the kind of conflicts of interest that were of concern if you were going to put the contract with the CCG. Uh, so a single commissioner budget with, this, with the Health and Wellbeing Board or some structure underneath the Health and Wellbeing Board uh, that engaged not just with the secondary care but also with primary care uh, seems to me to be one of the essential building blocks. And it's one 
that uh, I don't sense that there's dogmatic institutional objection to, but this is a direction of travel. It's why I'm in favour of evolving, uh, evolving the institutions that Andrew Lansley has legislated rather than trying to start again. The Health and Wellbeing Board, I didn't start off as an enthusiast for them, but I actually think that they're the bit in the new landscape that offers the best prospect of developing a solution to the problems that you identify. There does seem to be growing enthusiasm for them, doesn't there? Maybe it's the bit that people can most understand of these incredibly complex and sometimes incomprehensible (laughs) reforms that are hard to get across in um, one minute on Channel 4 News, I have to say. (laughs) Um, Can I say thank you? I I think there are lots of exciting things to look forward to as well as some concerns about what's going on, and I hope that that you have the air of the the new health secretary so you can give them some advice. (laughs) Um, Thank you very much. There's now a uh, refreshment break um, for, I think, about 15 minutes before your next session.